Well, I hope you have your Bibles this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to the little book of Jude. If it's been a little while since you've been to Jude, go all the way to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and then the book preceding Revelation, you will find the book of Jude. The title of the message this morning is Worldview Warfare. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we read our passage in verses 3 and 4. Let's start in verse 2. We give thanks to God for you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father. Did I tell you to turn to Jude? Wow. I thought to myself, that does not sound right. If you could only... Never mind. Can we do a restart? All right. I want to invite you to turn with me to the... <laughs> Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, it's always a, a pleasure and a delight to come together and open the Word of God with the people of God and read from this precious book. Thank you for this divine blueprint that we have before us, this this. Uh, letter from above, this love letter, so that we uh, could know you and your redemptive plans for all of your people throughout all the generations. God, this morning we have a, a vitally important passage before us, and it's one that is, is countercultural. It's one that really is, stands in opposition to, to much of what we hear in this world. And so even as your people... God, I pray that, as Kyle uh, mentioned earlier, as he prayed earlier, that you would give us eyes to see your truth and ears to hear your truth and hearts to receive it joyfully so that we would be encouraged, so that we would be equipped, so that we would be edified. Lord, I pray that uh, as your people are, are here this morning for this, this time slot, that a great and mighty thing would take place as we hear the Word of God, as we study the Word of God, and we recognize that it is, it's infallible, it's authoritative. These are words that are God-breathed, and so we, may we attend to these things with, with great sobriety and seriousness. May we be humble, as Isaiah 66 says. May we be contrite in spirit, and may we tremble at your Word. For those who wonder what that means, when we're done today, may they understand it in a greater way what it means to tremble before your word. And so we, we commit this time together to you for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The United States' position on weapons of mass destruction. Do you remember the weapons of mass destruction? It was former President George W. Bush that offered these words on December 11th, 2002. He said, Today I have issued the national strategy to combat weapons of mass destruction, WMD. The strategy establishes a comprehensive approach to counter the growing threat from WMD, including nuclear, radiological, biological, and chemical weapons. We will not permit the world's most dangerous regimes and terrorists to threaten our nation and our friends and allies with the world's most destructive weapons. Close quote. Now, I know that some of you are sitting here thinking the weapons of mass destruction never existed, and that's what many people in our nation continue to say. But there is an ongoing debate. It's a debate that will continue to um, go on, I believe, in the years to come because others maintain that Saddam Hussein actually did have weapons of destruction and he, somewhere along the way, 
disposed of them. That's a a conversation we can have on another day where you stand on that. So whether or not the WMDs posed a real threat to the world is a political matter. It's a matter that merits ongoing discussion for the days ahead and, as I mentioned, is one to be written in the history books. However, for followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is, and there is... No ambiguity here. There is another threat on the horizon. It is a threat that we explored for a few minutes this morning in the class that I taught. It is a threat that every believer must face. We learned about this threat in the book of Ephesians several weeks ago. We learned that every follower of Jesus Christ is in a battle. More specifically, we have learned that we are in an ideological battle. It's, it's an ideological war. And make no mistake, this is a war of ideas. It is not a war of flesh and blood, as Paul describes in Ephesians 6, but it is, in fact, a war of ideas. Now, sermon after sermon could be preached on the war of ideas. We have classes that we offer on several of these ideas that I'm going to set forth for you. But in a sermon where we have a limited amount of time this morning, I do want to give you an overview in what I like to call a, a smorgasbord of worldviews. Now, that should whet your appetite, no pun intended, to get a better idea of what the, the worldviews are that we as followers of Jesus Christ must contend with. And as we learned in the Veritas class several minutes ago, these things aren't going away anytime soon. My suspicion is these things will never go away until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so let me give you an example of the different worldviews that we face. The first is a worldview that some of you are familiar with. It's the worldview known as deism. Deism. The most prominent deist that I can think of in American history is a man who was at the center of what it means to, to be an American and to establish so much of what we cherish these days, and his name is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson believed that God exists, that God created the cosmos, he created the world, but after he created the world, it was a hands-off policy. In philosophy, the belief that reason is sufficient to prove the existence of God, that's a summation of the deistic worldview. And what follows then is a a, a pure rejection of revelation and authority. You see, in a deist worldview, the Word of God really doesn't have much weight. In a deist worldview, authority has been stripped of all its power. One writer says, in deism, there is no need for a preacher, a priest, or a rabbi. All one needs in deism is their own common sense and the creation to contemplate. That is the first worldview in this smorgasbord of worldviews. Then there is another worldview. It's one that we explored for an hour or so at our last Ironman session that concerns the origins, or most notably, the theory of evolution. To put it very simply, the theory of evolution posits the belief that life arose by chance from non-living matter. It was Francis Schaeffer who said, quote, Man came forth, according to the evolutionary scientists, from non-man on the basis of time and chance. What's the evolutionist do? The evolutionist says, well, you, you Christians don't understand. It took billions of years for all these things to take place. Listen to Schaefer again. That in the evolutionary scheme, man came forth from non-man. That is, life comes from non-life. I challenge any scientist to ever reproduce that. Did you know it'll never happen? Did you know as a Christian, we don't have to be afraid of science? That as a Christian, we can have unshakable and indisputable confidence knowing that life does not arise from non-life. And so man came forth in this theory and its view from non-man on the basis of time and chance. So when the evolutionist says you need millions of years or billions of years, all they do is nail another nail in their evolutionary coffin. It doesn't prove anything. 
There's another worldview in this smorgasbord of worldviews that is less common and less known, but it is worth our study for a moment this morning. It's the view known as nihilism. The way I remember nihilism is this is the thing that is getting increasingly, increasingly worse as I get older. My knee, nihilism. Nihilism is the worldview that rejects God, purpose, meaning, and values. In short, the nihilist says, this life that we live is absurd. There are writers, many writers over the years that I have read, philosophers, who actually utter those words. Life is absurd. One notable nihilist, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, wrote, quote, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one great innermost corruption, the one great instinct of revenge. I call it the one immortal blemish of mankind. It surprises people when I tell them that I have a a strong measure of respect for Friedrich Nietzsche. And here's the reason I respect him. Because with a worldview like that, where there is no God, there is no hope, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, when you die, you go into the ground, and that's the end of the game. The reason I have a measure of respect for Friedrich Nietzsche is because he lived out the, the, the logical conclusion of his worldview. In other words, he went through life, and as he got older and older, he had less purpose and less purpose. He spent the last seven or eight years of his life in an insane asylum. And isn't that where a person who believes there is no God, no purpose, no hope, no meaning, no morality, where such a person belongs? Not in a judgmental sense, but in the sense that if that's what your worldview is, it should, it should drive you nuts. And that's exactly what happened to Friedrich Nietzsche. At least he lived out his worldview. The final worldview I would commend to you to consider is one that we live with every day. It's the view known as postmodernism. This is the worldview that utterly rejects a single overarching worldview. The word that philosophers use as meta-narrative. And meta-narrative is, is a, a term that may be new to you, but it's a vitally important term. For a meta-narrative is, is the big story. I would hope that many of you, if I, if I asked you the question over a cup of coffee, could you share with me the big story in just a few words? The big story from God's perspective. And my, my hope and my prayer is that many of you would say, well, that's very simple. The meta narrative, the big story is creation, fall, redemption, consummation, where Jesus makes all things new. That's the Christian worldview 101. This is a Christian worldview for dummies, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or consummation where Jesus makes all things new. The postmodernist says that is utter rubbish. There, it is arrogant for a follower of Jesus Christ to say that there's one big story. Rather, there are competing stories. And according to the postmodernists, they all have value. They are all equal in value. It was the late Stanley Grenz who said, quote, Postmoderns view all explanations of reality as constructions that are useful but not objectively true, close quote. And so we need to realize this morning the power of a false idea. Whether it's a deist or an evolutionary scientist or a nihilist or a postmodernist or the host of other worldviews, we need to recognize the power of a false idea. J. Gresham Machen, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, said false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. And that's very, very true. And so last week we, we saw what I referred to as the anchors of security that serve like bookends in the, in the little letter of Jude that provide relief to the followers of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus who feel Weak and vulnerable in light of the false teachers who have recently emerged into the church. I'm thinking first century. So last week we learned that God summons us to salvation. He, He calls us to salvation. He secures us in our salvation. And he surrounds us with mercy, peace, and love. But in light of this intense ideological war, we need to recognize that we have certain responsibilities that we must attend to in the kingdom of God. 
And so the question I would pose this morning is, what is the appropriate response to this rising tide of pluralism? As, as we realize that there are theological pirates both outside the church and also inside the church who have, who have crept into the church, what is the response that God is calling for? Well, Jude provides that response for us. And this is what I like to call, and some of you will say I'm crazy by the time we're done. This is my one-point sermon. Some of you think I'm crazy right now. You say that's, that's utterly impossible. Here is the one point, and it's the point I want to, to leave with you. And the point is that we are called to contend for the faith. That is the one-point sermon. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, walk away and remember, we are called to contend for the faith. Let me challenge parents with small children, if your children are in the sanctuary this morning. This is your bonus question at lunch today. Young man, young lady, Pastor Dave had a, a takeaway what was the takeaway? What was the, the thing he wanted you to remember? I'll give all the kids the answer in advance because all your parents will ask you this, right? Right before dessert. We must contend for the faith. And as Jude says, once for all delivered to the saints. Look at it in verse 3. Beloved, he loves these people. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in this one-point sermon, we have lots of subpoints. You say, ah, I knew there was a catch. I want to take this one point to contend for the faith and look at this statement, this admonition from several different angles. And the first angle is one of explanation. I want to explain the exhortation to contend for the faith. In order to do that, I want you to see the motivation behind the exhortation. We all know now what the exhortation is. Followers of Christ, we are called to contend for the faith. Why? What is on the mind of Jude? Why would he tell these people to contend for the faith? Well, notice in verse 3, if you're reading from the ESV, you'll see the word appealing. That's a word worth highlighting. Appealing. The word appealing comes from the Greek word that means to call to, to one side. It means to admonish. It means to encourage. It means to, to strengthen. It means to exhort the people of God. So he's making an appeal. And the word is so important. To, to give you an idea of the motive behind the exhortation, I want to show you four other places. You don't need to turn there. But four other places that use the same Greek word. And see if you get the flavor, at, 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 the, the depth and the meaning of this word. In Acts chapter 11, verse 23, Stephen, he exhorted... That's the word translated appeal. He exhorted the believers to remain faithful in the Lord. Do you, do you hear the, the admonition? Do you hear the encouragement? Brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, stay faithful in the Lord. Stand fast. Peter does it also in 1 Peter 2.11. Peter urges, that's the word translated appeal, he urges the believers to abstain from the flesh. That's a message I believe every young man needs to hear from his father. That's not only a word that every young man needs to hear from his father, that's a word that every Christ follower needs to heed, right? Is we are called, we are urged, we are, to, we are admonished to, to abstain from the deeds of the flesh. 1 Peter 5.12, Peter urges us, there's the word, he urges us to stand firm in the true grace of God. Now when an appeal is made in scripture, it is meant to, to motivate, to, to spur, to cause a person to stand strong, to encourage a person to maintain their biblical convictions. In our culture, it might mean to get someone to actually begin to have biblical convictions, to steer clear from sin, to uphold the truth of God's word. Then and only then will we be able to stand firm, as Peter says, in the true grace of God. 
Now, here's what's interesting that's fascinated me for years, is if you look at verse 3, Jude seems to indicate that he had originally planned to write a really encouraging letter. Have you ever done that with with a, a friend or maybe your spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend? You get to writing this letter and, oh, dear sweetie, I love you so much. And then all of a sudden the thought pops into your mind like, wait a minute. My whole strategy just changed. That's exactly what happens here. I was eager to write to you, Jude says, about our common salvation. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Here's what had happened. As Jude is penning this letter, literally writing this letter, he realizes, he becomes aware of something that so stirred his passion that he was compelled to appeal to these first century Christ followers to get them to contend for the faith. So go with me from the explanation of the exhortation to the meaning of the exhortation. Move forward just a few words in verse 3 and look at that word uh, contend, to contend for the faith. It comes from a very important Greek word that means, and you will all relate to this, it means to get into the game. It means you, you, you come off the sidelines. I, I remember when I played basketball as a fifth or sixth grader, I would, I would sit on the sidelines and my buddy John and, and Leroy and all these other friends of mine, they would get to go in the game and there's little Davy Steele sitting on the bench twiddling my thumbs. Well, what do you think Davy Steele wanted to do? I wanted to get in the game, man, right? That's what Jude says. It's time to get in the game. This word means to to compete, to fight, to contend with adversaries. It means to fight with zeal. Let me show you two other places, and we'll put these verses on the screen. Words that come from the Greek word translated to contend. First, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, notice what Paul says. And let's put that on the screen for us to see. Fight. That's the word translated contend. We are called to, to fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Now last week we learned that there are two kinds of call. There is the, the general call which is offered to all. Then there is the, the efficacious call or the effectual call that is only given to God's elect. When Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, he's talking about God's elect. He's communicating to God's elect to take hold of the eternal life which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. At the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul also says this, I have, remember first he said, fight the good fight of faith. Now he gets to the end and he knows that his days are numbered. And he said, I have, past tense, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Isn't that what you want to say at the end of your Christian journey? As you, as you lay on your hospital bed and whatever it, the thoughts are that run through your mind... Isn't one of the last things that that wants to run through your mind is, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Do you know so very few men and women in our day finish the race strong? Just yesterday I was talking with my dear friend in the Bay Area, pastors down there. And we were talking about exercise, and I was sharing with Dreen the story that my friend asked me, what are you doing for exercise? I said, I exercise a lot. I told him how much, and it kind of scared him. And he said, hey, man, he goes, uh, don't overdo it. I need you to help me finish strong. That was encouraging to me. And we talk about these kinds of things a lot. We need to remain faithful together in ministry. All for the glory of God. Now Jude, when he instructs these believers to contend for the faith, which, by the way, he tells each of us to contend for the faith, he writes in the present tense. And as you know by this point, when an author uses the present tense, it it means ongoing action. It means to contend for the faith day after day after day. But pastor, you don't understand. I want to go on vacation for a week. I want to to take time off for several months. Contending for the faith is something that we are called to do 
from the, the second we become Christians until the last breath we take on this earth. We are to contend for the faith. We are to fight for the faith. We are to fight the good fight. You say, what's this all about? Well, really, Jude here is referring to the essence, the very essence of the Christian faith. And let me sum it up for you. I gave you the Christian worldview for dummies, right? And none of you will ever forget this as long as you live. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration or consummation when Jesus makes all things new. Let me give the essence of the Christian faith, which is precisely what Jude is referring to. This is the essence, that there is one God... Not two, not six, not nine. There is one God who exists eternally as the Trinity, and he created the world for his glory. Isaiah 43 says he he created each of us for his pleasure, for his glory. One of the writers who is responsible for really coining the term worldview You're all familiar with that phrase by now. It comes from a Greek word, and I will not try to pronounce it and torture it for those of you who are competent in German. But James Orr says this, and this describes what I'm referring to. He says, He who with his whole heart believes in Jesus as the Son of God is thereby committed to much else besides. Let me break out of the quote for a moment. Here's what James Orr is referring to. If you are here this morning and you say, yes, pastor, I believe that that God, the triune God, created all things for his glory. If you believe that and you believe Jesus Christ is the son of God, then by the very definition, you are committed to a whole host of things. And Orr spells this out in a summary form. You are committed to a view of God, to a view of man, to a view of sin, to a view of redemption, to a view of human destiny that is only found in historic Christianity. These things form the Christian worldview. In the Veritas class this morning, we heard from Dr. Peter Jones, who referred to the leader of the Episcopalian church that at the time of the publication of this video, it was 2014, he referred to this Episcopalian leader who said that there are no more categories for Episcopalians for sin. Now think about that. When, when you eliminate the category of sin, what happens to the Christian worldview? It's gone. When you eliminate the category of sin, when you eliminate the biblical category of God or who we are as the people of God, when you begin to compromise or fudge on those theological categories, it's not just one thing you compromise on. You compromise the whole Christian worldview and the house of cards falls flat. I want to move to the next question, the next angle of what it means to contend for the faith. What does it mean now to contend for the faith in the real world? Jude says, I wrote appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and me? And there's a threefold answer that I hope will encourage you and you'll take action on these. Number one is you must be aware of the false teachers. That great picture I showed you a few minutes ago and also last week of that pirate, that's, the, that's my way of remembering the theological pirate, right? Is one of our responsibilities as followers of Jesus in contending for the faith is that we must be aware of false teachers. And here's what I found over the last 25 plus years in ministry. There, there is a, a fair, fairly large majority of Christians who say something like this, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about Gnosticism. I don't want to hear about postmodernism. I don't... This, and it's the, the, what, I, what I think about is it's like they're the Christian ostrich with their head in the sand. I don't want to hear about it either. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's going to take too much effort. Uh, it, it's too painful to hear. Some of this is creeping into the church. I, I don't want to hear it. If that's you this morning, I would urge you to begin by saying, I will learn to be aware of false teachers, which requires knowledge, which requires work. In Acts chapter 20, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders, and he says this. He says, I know that after my departure, 
So he's getting ready to, to leave this group of elders that he has helped establish in the faith. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, it's this theological pirate, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I must confess to you that what shocks me the most about this particular passage of Scripture is not that the theological wolves exist. We all know that. What is shocking to me is the origin of the theological wolves. He says, from among your own selves. Imagine, if I'm the Apostle Paul, and I, my family, we, we, we pull up stakes, and we, we leave Everson, and I say, beware of theological wolves that will arise in your midst. In other words, there may be people in our own church family who are, are just gearing up to lead someone astray. I pray that's not the case. But that's exactly what Paul's saying. Be on alert. When I leave, they will surface and they will surface among you. So be aware of false teachers. Now this is a little bit of a play on words, but hear it closely. We not only be aware of false teachers, but beware of false teachers. In other words, you, you need to recognize they exist, but once you recognize they exist and you say, I think I have an idea about what this worldview teaches. I think I have an idea about what a Jehovah's Witness believes. I think I have a basic idea of what a Buddhist believes. Once you're aware, then the next call is to beware of these false teachers. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, beware of false Prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We've seen this throughout the history of the church where a, a leader will pop up and he'll lead people astray. A leader will pop up and he'll, he'll start a movement. A leader will pop up and he'll, he'll begin to deny cardinal truths in the word of God. Next thing you know, we have the makings of a cult group. We must be aware of the false teachers. We must beware of false teachers. And here's where it gets real practical. The Word of God instructs us to share with these false teachers and opponents of the Christian faith. Paul says as much in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I think of many people that I've met over the years, and one of my favorite places to meet people is in the coffee shop, right? It's just a great place to meet people. I remember when we were in Legrand, I, I made friends with, with the whole crew. They just became friends, and we never did anything outside of Starbucks. It was just I was kind of the friend that walked in. They knew that I was the latte guy or the drip coffee guy that needed extra room, right? They knew I was the guy that ordered a, a, a tall coffee and a grande cup, right, because I'm cheap. We learned those things about one another. And one of these guys dabbled in some very strange worldview issues, issues. There is the manager, a woman by the name of Ida, who was an atheist. And one day, she used to just, just, she would tease me to no end. You Christians, you closed-minded people, whatever, right? But she was always kind. She was always gracious. And one day, I just diffused the whole conversation. I said, Ida, you know what? You're, you're probably the nicest atheist I've ever met in my life. Wow. You see... As Christians, we don't have to be the mean guys. We don't have to be the nasty guys. We don't need to be argumentative. In fact, Scripture urges us to do the opposite, is we build bridges with the unbelieving world. We blow them away with our graciousness that only comes from God, because I will confess to you, in and of myself, I can't pull it off, because I am not gracious, right? Who exactly is it that we're contending against? That's the next angle I want to explore with you. Who are these theological pirates? 
We need to remember that we're in a war. This is a, a war of ideas, as I've already said. It was Warren Wiersbe who said this, and I loved it. He said, the Christian life is not, the Christian life is a battleground. It's not a playground. And my fear is that many Christians have embraced this idea that we're in this, this playground situation. We are in a battleground. So I want you to see who we're contending with by looking, first of all, at the condemnation of the pirates, the condemnation of these theological pirates or these false teachers. Before offering a description and giving you an idea of what kinds of people they were, and some of you are reading ahead and are looking at verse 4, and it's, this is a nasty, nasty list. We need to recognize a few things about their condemnation. And I, I also must confess, this may sound a little shocking to some of your ears. Here's what we learned. These theological pirates were set apart for judgment in eternity past. You say, what does that mean? It means that in eternity past, God decreed to judge these false teachers that were designated in verse 4. means to to write beforehand. It means this. It means that the, the judgment of these false teachers was established before they were even born. The word condemnation... Or if some of you have the, the Christian Standard Bible, which, by the way, is an excellent translation. The word is translated as judgment, judgment or condemnation. It comes from the Greek word krinos. Romans 8, there is no krinos to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there is, there is no judgment. You say, yeah, but what about when I was? There is no krinos to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. But you don't know how I treated my wife, Pastor. There is no krinos to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. But not so for these false teachers. God's word says they were designated in eternity past to be condemned. Now, Jude did not write that these men were ordained to become apostates as though some, somehow God were mysteriously responsible for their sin. No, I'll give you the simple explanation. They became apostates because they wanted to. You say, how does that work out? God ordained it. They did it because they wanted to. It's what theologians call compatibilism. It's the sovereignty of God and the free choices that people make. And they somehow come together where God is praiseworthy for decreeing an event, but sinners or apostates are blameworthy for the horrible decisions that they make. But let's go further. Notice not only their condemnation, but look with me at the commencement of the pirates. And this, this is shocking. And I, I hope you see this vividly. Verse 4, certain people, that is these false teachers, have crept in unnoticed. You see, what happened is these false teachers didn't walk into the first century church and say, we're here to teach a bunch of false theology. We're the heretics. We're the apostates. We're going to lead all your children astray. No, no. The theological pirates are far too shrewd for that. What did they do? This is a, it's a wild word. They, they crept in. The Greek word means stealth. Stealth. I bought a guitar when I was about 20 years old. I was in the city of Tacoma. And some of you, if you if you spent any time in Tacoma, know exactly where this is. Um, but there was a, a, a guitar shop right there on, on South Tacoma Way, I believe it was called. And I bought my guitar, and I, I, I stepped out, and it was this, this bright, sunny day. And I just looked up and thought, wow, it's amazing. And then I heard something. And I was like, I, I have to tell you, I was like, I hope I'm ready. Jesus is coming. It wasn't Jesus. It was a stealth bomber. Have you ever seen one of those things live? Just, I mean, I was looking at the sky and I, and then all of a sudden, boom, it just appeared out of nowhere. I mean, and the Darth Vader music started going off. I'm like, dun, 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 dun. It was wild. This was crazy. That's what's happening here in this passage. Is the first century church, they're going along their merry way, and they, next thing you know, boom, the false teachers. They creep into the church. They slip in using stealth. Now, the action that Jude speaks of is in the past tense, which is the, written in the aorist in the Greek, and it means this. No one even noticed them. 
That's where my analogy falls apart. I see it and go, wow, this is amazing. These false teachers, they slip in and the elders, they had no idea that there are heretics in the ranks. Galatians chapter 2 verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, Paul says, who slipped in to spy out the freedom we have in Christ so that they might bring us in to slavery. Or Peter addresses this in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. False prophets also arose, listen, among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon them swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. These theological pirates flew under the radar. And they used deceit and deception and stealth. One of the things we'll learn together is that false teachers try their best to look as Christian as possible. Not all of them, but many of them will try their best to look as Christian as possible. Look with me also at the condition of these pirates. And this is a sober, sober look. Jude, I believe, is writing to this group of Christ followers during what some have described the preliminary stages of Gnosticism. Gnosticism had not likely come into full bloom yet, but it's just getting started because it begins to pick up speed in the second century. The Gnostics believe, if you remember, that matter is evil and spirit is good. Moreover, they taught that since the flesh was not created by God, because matter is evil, it's proper to give in to a whole host of desires, including sinful desires. And so look at the description in verse 4. There's three things that Jude says about them. Number one, he says they are ungodly people. comes from a word that means a person who is destitute of, of reverence or awe from God. Some of you know such a person. Someone who is, ha, has no awe or reverence for the living God. Number two, he says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. The word pervert comes from a word that means unbridled lust. And so you, you combine ungodliness with unbridled lust with the third thing that emerges also in verse 4. They deny Jesus Christ. That is, they deny the, the person of Jesus Christ, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. These are the individuals, and it's a shock. They slipped in. They used stealth to slip into this local church. Finally, notice the criteria for detecting false pirates. And I would urge you to jot these down because you will see these throughout the course of your Christian journey. Things that people either affirm or deny. The first thing that a a theological pirate may deny is, as I've already mentioned it, his deity. The deity of Christ and the substitutionary work on the cross for sinners. More and more we see even those who name the name of Christ, who are repudiating the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. May I say this, and I hope this comes across humble and gracious, but also bold, that when you run across a person who rejects the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, you're talking to a theological wolf. You say, Pastor, can't we just leave some wiggle room for the atonement? There is no wiggle room for the atonement. You must believe, as the scriptures say, that Jesus Christ became the substitute for every person who would ever believe. There's another criteria for detecting these false teachers, and one that you're very well aware of, and that is works-based salvation. They deny the substitutionary atonement, but then another teacher comes along and he says, we affirm that we are saved by what we do, but it's not quite that simple. Generally, what you see in some traditions is, is we believe that we're saved by, by grace through faith in Christ. But if you throw in the word alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, those are fighting words for these groups, right? They believe they're saved by works. Or there's a third kind of a person that believes in self-salvation or humanism. 
The God within, they may say. And then finally, you run across a person, whether it's a naturalist or an atheist or an evolutionary person, and they believe that no salvation is necessary. So we have a broad scope of different worldviews that, that could easily slip in to a local church. Finally, may I leave you with a few principles for contending for the faith and combating these false Worldviews. Let me give you five briefly. Number one, may I encourage you to cultivate a basic understanding of the dominant worldviews in our culture. It goes something like this. If I take my glasses off, I, I can't see it an awful lot. You know, I can't see an awful lot. But when I put my glasses back on, I can see you all just fine. We need to put on the, the, the biblical worldview glasses where we see through the, the framework of who is God who is the authority? What do we know about man? What do we know about, e- about eternity? What do we know about salvation? And see how the, the Holy Scripture addresses each of these issues. Number two, create a safeguard in your minds against these false worldviews. You see, the, the biblical solution is not to run from the world. And Jesus addressed this in his high priestly prayer, didn't he? He, he said, my, my prayer is not, O Father, that you take them out of the world. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. And so creating a safeguard around your minds involves remembering Colossians 2.8 that says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. My uncle used to call it fool-osophy, F-O-O-L. Don't be captivated by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Number three, now I just want to say this loud, cling to the truth. Make a declaration. I will never compromise the truth. Not ever. And there's not a comma after that sentence. I will never compromise the truth, period. Number four, consciously defend the Christian worldview. That's exactly what Jude is admonishing these dear believers to do. And that's what he's admonishing you and I to do, to defend the Christian worldview. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we demolish arguments. Those are the worldviews that we're talking about. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And so young people, you hear about evolutionary theory in the school. And they say that uh, living matter came from non-living matter. The way you take that captive is to say Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, only a fool believes in that, right? You take that thought captive. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Hebrews 11.3, Hebrews 1.3. All these verses, Acts chapter 17, that tell us God and God alone is the creator. Number five, and finally, commit yourself to developing a coherent Christian worldview. And hopefully this morning we've all done that. What's the first thing? It starts with C. Creation, God created. What's next? Fall. What's next? Redemption. Jesus died on the cross for sinners. And then consummation, restoration. Jesus makes all things new. We, we are beginning to establish a, a coherent Christian worldview. And here's what you'll find, whether you're 14 years old or 74 years old, that for the rest of your days, you will learn more and more and more about these four things. I'm 52 years of age, and I just bought another book about creation and evolution last week. Why? Because I need to learn more. I need to learn more. I read about the fall over and over and over again. You read Genesis. You read about that original, and, and God continues to illuminate his word and teach us more and more. You learn more about redemption. I've learned more about redemption in the last 10 years and over the whole course of my Christian life, and I've just... Touch the tip of the iceberg. You learn about restoration, that Jesus will make all things new. So you fill in the blanks on your Christian worldview. But for our purposes today, you have the basic skeleton. You have the basic outline in place. And so the weapons of mass destruction for the believer are in the realm of ideas. 
The Word of God calls each of us to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. If we determine to follow the crowd, our fate will be grim indeed. It was one wise man who said many years ago, He who marries the spirit of the age will soon become a widower. And I fear that's where some people are going in local churches in our culture. Let me give you the truth point and we'll close. We must contend for the faith. And young people, here's the answer for your bonus question at lunch. In fact, I want to go one step further. If you're either a young person or a child and your mom or dad ask you that question and you get the right answer, would you email me and tell me what the right answer was? It would be so cool tomorrow to get like 20 emails from kids and teenagers like, yeah, I told my mom and dad, we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Pastor, I can't remember that. It's Jude 3. There's the answer. Would you send me an email? And that would really encourage me and allow me, uh, afford me the pleasure of seeing that God is, is teaching you in this place. Let us rise together as members and attenders of Christ's fellowship. And stand against every strand of apostasy and false teaching. And let us engage in worldview warfare so that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be glorified. Let's pray together. Father, it never ceases to amaze me what we can learn, what we can grasp from a few short verses. Thank you for being so gracious with us this morning for being patient holy spirit for for being our teacher for helping us to understand these vital lessons got to pray that you would protect christ fellowship as we move forward that we would be people of the book we'd be people of the word i pray that you'd protect the the elders and the deacons as they lead with great humility and contrition as they tremble before the word of god i pray that you'd protect the flock here god protect them from false teachers God, I pray especially for uh, teenagers, for children, that as they are at the beginning stage of forming their Christian worldviews, that you would protect them, that you would guard them from false ideas, false ideology, philosophy. May you ground them deeply in the soil of your grace. And God, most of all, we, we are so thankful today for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that delivers us from our sin both the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And one day, we can't wait to be delivered from sin's very presence. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.